Hey everyone, Paul here. Thanks for listening to Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning making. Oftentimes when I have a guest on the podcast, I like to start the episode by playing a short highlight from the conversation. But in the conversation I have today with John Verveke, I found it to be completely impossible to select just one clip. Every ounce of this conversation seems to be inseparably linked to other profound points in the conversation. So much so that I think it's best that we just dive into it without any singular highlight. Dr. John Verveke has been on the program before, back in episode 83. So if you want to know a bit more about John's background and formative experiences, along with a pretty spectacular conversation about things like the flow state and Pentecostal spiritual experiences, I recommend going back and listening to that episode too. John is an award-winning professor at the University of Toronto, where he has been teaching and leading groundbreaking research in the field of cognitive science, psychology, and the human experience of meaning since 1994. Dr. Verveke is a renowned scientist and lecturer, but outside of academia and the sciences, he might be best known for his 50-part YouTube lecture series entitled Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. One of the things that I think makes our conversations so special is that John is not a professing adherent to the Christian faith, which is different from just about every other guest I've had on this podcast. Working through points of commonality and difference with a brilliant intellect like Dr. John Verveke is an absolute honor. Today, we only work through simple subjects like the nature of consciousness, God, religious experience, and if we can evaluate whether those religious experiences are true or good, you know, just light, casual conversation. But in all seriousness, uh, I promise that the claim that this podcast is called Deep Talks will not disappoint with this episode. I hope you enjoy it. One last word before we get into the conversation. I want to give a special thanks to those who are supporting this podcast via Patreon and keeping it afloat without advertisement. Thank you for your support. Stay tuned to the end of today's episode. You can find out more about how you can get involved there. And without further ado, I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Dr. John Verveke. There's been more requests to have you back on than just about any other guest. So, Thank you for saying that. I'm, uh, I'm grateful to hear that my thoughts work helpful to people and, um, and um, I'm encouraged uh, by the feedback you've given me. So thank you. Good, good, good. Well, there was certainly an area that we didn't get to cover in our last conversation that I wanted to start with today, and I wanted to do it as a way of introducing my regular listeners to a concept that's part of your normal vocabulary, but um, admittedly for some in a traditional religious context, like in in my context, uh, this term can sound to some a bit frightening, but I've actually found it to be really, really helpful, and I actually found it to be a concept that actually maps on in many ways to traditional theological ideas about liturgy, spiritual formation, etc. And that's this concept of psychotechnologies. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe you could explain a basic primer on what is a psychotechnology and give some examples of the maybe more revolutionary psychotechnologies in human history. Sure. Um, so the idea has been influenced by a lot of people, Vygotsky. Uh, it's probably the strongest influence, but also Olson uh, and others. Um, so 
this is get, uh, you know tech day, and then we take that into technology a tool. Uh, let's just talk about normal everyday tools. Of course, there's profound analysis by tools, tool use by Heidegger and by Harman. So our relationship to tools is actually um, has this weird um, double sidedness to it. Um, we take tools off almost for granted. In fact, they we as Andy Clark argues, we're natural born cyborgs. Uh, we identify with them. So other than your naked body and the atmosphere, everything around you is a tool, including the clothes you're wearing. Um, and of course, all of this. So we, we, we in one sense, it, it is the most, it is, it is blindingly familiar to us and so much so that we identify it, but then we don't realize because of that, um, how profound tools transform us. Uh, Clark was trying to convey that in uh, in his book um, Natural Born Cyborgs. There's an excellent uh, 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 philosophical book, uh, uh, Universe of Things, by Shaviro, and he's he's also um, uh, relates a story. I forget the author. I ordered the book, the science fiction author, Universe of Things, about how this mechanic has this almost mystical experiences where he really feels the tools around him as alive. And it's very, very disconcerting for him. Um, and so, uh, before we even get into psychotechnology, I want to, I want people to appreciate how how simultaneously technology, in the sense of tools, not just computers and cars, but clothes and walls, right, and buildings, right? They're all those are all technology. How much it permeates you, but how profound. It also transforms you. So, that, so what, what is a, like a tool? I'll think of like a regular tool, like a hammer. It's designed to fit, right, your, 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 your biology, your physiology, your anatomy, and work with it and extend it and enhance its power. So if I try to push a nail into wood with my hands, it's largely useless, but my uh, hammer is designed to perfectly fit on my hand and with my, uh, the leverage of my arm, extend it, and you know, concentrate its force and all that, so I can drive a nail in. So that's what, so that's how a tool works. It's designed to fit us. That's why it permeates us, but it also is designed to empower us. That's why it's so it can has the capacity to transform us. And what we have to think is that there are ways of organizing um, the formatting, the formulation, the communication, the transformation of information that can do the same thing. It can, those transformations of information, can, of information processing, better said, uh, are designed to fit the way our mind works and extend it um, and empower it. Um, and so what, when you have a, a standardized uh, way of formulating and transmitting and transforming uh, information processing. Which are all via symbols too, right? And so you could, in some sense, think of a symbol as a tool be. as well. It it, well, let, we'll come back to the symbol. That's a good example. Let me give a less controversial one, uh, and then we'll move to stuff where it might not seem as readily apparent. Uh, so the thing about these is we internalize them, right? Like I said, they become a part of our very, very warp and woof of our mind, the fabric of our cognition. Um, and so 
when you have the socially generated standardization of information processing designed to be internalized and enhance our information processing so that we indwell the world in a different way, and not just in a specific area like a skill, but in a domain general kind of fashion, that's the psychotechnology. Now, that was all very abstract, so let's do a very concrete example. Literacy. So we are natural-born linguistic beings. We speak, but we are not naturally literate. Of course, there's all of prehistory uh, in which human beings are illiterate. Vast areas of the Earth today are, are populated by people who are illiterate. Uh, they, of course, are linguistic, but they're... So literacy is something that we have to... It's socially generated. We have to learn it. We internalize it. But notice how profoundly we internalize it. Notice how hard it is for you to think without making you know, visual use of letters. Here, right? And think about so how much it has been internalized. It's become automatic to you to read. In fact, if I put some letters up in front of you, you, you cannot help but read them. Right? Mm-hmm. It's just, okay? But think about how it empowers you. Think about how, well, well, think about the reverse. Imagine if I remove literacy from you. Think about all the problems you could no longer solve. Think about how literacy allows you to tap into your past self and communicate with your future self. So what you can do is you can link all those versions of yourself together and massively increase the power you can bring to solve your problems. You can store information outside of your mind and then Look at it and reflect on it. Imagine if you tried to become aware of your, of your thinking and you couldn't write it down. All you had was what you could keep in the ephemeral state of working memory. But I can also use my literacy to communicate my thoughts beyond my existence to other human beings and have them communicate. I can read Plato. I can be in touch with one of the greatest minds of all time because of literacy. See, so that's what a psychotechnology is. It's a tool that profoundly uh, permeates you in internalization, but it also profoundly empowers you to indwell the world, to be able to see patterns with with increased cognitive power and interact with them more powerfully. So those are psychotechnologies. Another is numeracy. Um, and, And see how, like, notice that literacy isn't just something that you do in a very uh, domain-specific way, like the skill of playing tennis. I can't use my skill of playing tennis pretty much outside of the game of tennis. But where can I not use literacy? Mm -hmm. Well, everywhere I turn. That's why it's a tool, right? Everywhere I turn, I can use literacy. And it's something standardized between us. Um, So I'm trying to give you all these different facets. That's what I'm trying to convey with the psychotechnology. Music be another example of one as well? Now, music is interesting because there's two aspects of music. See, and this is why music is really interesting because it stands on the border, right? So music is in one sense like language. It's natural to human beings. You don't have to, all you have to do is be exposed to music and you'll be musical. Small children will dance to music and they will start singing as almost as soon as they can speak, right? So music is like language. But what we can do is we can think of right, all the way in which we have created musical literacy. We've created the notes uh, right, so that we can play the music of Beethoven, mm-hmm. play the music of Beethoven, and we can look at it right, in an enduring fashion. So music, it, it, right, so there's, uh, 
the, the music is like language, but there's a musical literacy that's analogous um, to, uh, uh, to written literacy. And the thing about that is people have noticed that there's overlaps between musical literacy, linguistic literacy, mathematical literacy, if I want to put it that way. Yeah, and it seems like in the same way that these expressions, what makes them a psychotechnology is that they both extend you out to others, but it also becomes a seamless part of you in some sense. Yes, Um, very much. You know, and, and, you know, the people get concerned about transhumanism sorts of conversations, but I've got a friend um, who... His name's Micah Redding, and he uh, he leads the Christian Transhumanist Association, which seems like a weird combination yeah. of words that wouldn't go together. Uh, but part of his argument, I've had him on before, is that um, when we think about these specific technologies and them potentially being integrated into our body, like if you could somehow take an iPhone and make it part of you, he's, part of his argument's been, well, it is kind of already part of you anyways. Uh, even though it's in your hand, it hasn't been fully internalized. Um, what, what's the next step, you know, if it's used in such a way where you can actually feel, you know, when you've misplaced your phone or you've had it in your hands all day and you go set it on a table and you leave and you go someplace else, you can almost in the same way that people have, that have lost a limb before I've got a friend that just, just lost a a finger in a, a work accident and he still has the sensation of that finger yeah, being painful. connected to him and psychotechnology seem to work like that. I can't imagine somehow uh, if you were amputating literacy from me, how, how would that even be removed from the very fabric of myself and my conscious experience? Yeah, so much would be good. You would shrink and your world would shrink uh, dramatically. Um, now, the, the issue, of course, about these, and perhaps that's what overlaps with your uh, discussion about transhumanism, is you know, there's a difference between uh, the, you know, the, the, the power and, the, and our identification with these um, technologies, especially psychotechnologies, and how they transform us, and whether or not that transformation is tethered to what's true and good and beautiful, whether it is transformation that is seeking wisdom. Um, so, of course, literacy, I mean, uh, you're a Christian, you find certain literate works sacred to you. Uh, but, of course, literacy can also uh, be used by uh, propaganda. That's why, you know, after the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, the Soviet Union immediately started getting everybody literate uh, for the precise purpose of being able to uh, subject them more to propaganda and control. Uh, so I'm just showing that, like a sword, um, uh, which is a, another kind of technology. Um, and by the way, I do a martial art form with a sword, and you inhabit the sword, you indwell it, and it becomes part of you. Or else you're not doing the form very well. Uh, but you know, all psychotechnologies, like all technologies, are double-edged swords. So the issue wouldn't be, I, well, I guess I would, would, if I was discussing with your transhumanist friend, the issue wouldn't be if it's going to happen, because he's absolutely right. It's already happened. In fact, is it's been happening since we started making Acheulean hand axes. Right? Your, your brain, if you use it too long enough, it starts to incorporate the tool into your body image. Um, and, and, and it moves into objects like the rubber arm illusion and other things. But your sense of self is, is much more plastic. Uh, um, so the question isn't 
when, he's right, it's already been happening. The, the question we should ask is, towards what end? Uh, towards what end is, uh, is this uh, identification with a particular technology taking place? Now, there's one other point he makes that I'd like to highlight, which is there is an increasing integration of psychotechnology with cyber technology. These two are increasingly um, reinforcing each other. The phone is a great example. That tremendous literacy and access through literacy to the internet, but you also have the cyber uh, power of the distributed computation on the internet. And so the psychotechnology and the cyber technology are integrated. So he's also right to point to that. And so that's also something that we need to reflect on. I would say at the level of philosophical reflection on what this means for us. We are running a horrible, uh, unpremeditated, unreflective social experiment on human beings to degree to which they're, we're tethering them to their phones. Well, they're not even phones. Calling it a phone is a ridiculous misnomer. <laughs> it, 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 it's basically, you know, uh, you know, a, a computer, a Star Trek-like level computer, and, and social media and the internet. We're having profound, and there's, you know, increasing evidence. It's having profound impacts on people. And we're getting the first generation of people who have grown up their entire lives enmeshed in this. And they're, they're, they're being changed they have, in a way that we don't really understand. Yeah. I mean, I feel it on a gutter level. My wife and I try to. We are not very good at times in practicing this, but having a screen Sabbath, you yeah. know, where we just unplug and you can feel it in or, or a practice of fasting from social media, which, you know, in some sense yeah. doesn't seem like the great ways the desert mystics would have practiced fasting, but you can feel its absence. You can feel yourself unplugging. It changes your conscious experience. And that's kind of why I wanted to start there, because the line of inquiry I wanted to explore with you today, John, was primarily about really the nature of consciousness and the way that psychotechnologies and, and culture, which we're all enmeshed in culture, connect together. You got guys like Hirt Hofsvidi, who was, you know, Dutch social psychologist, did that um, groundbreaking work with IBM. I don't know if you're familiar with his work at all. And, uh, you know, one of his, his, his pioneering project was trying to map out across national social cultures, um, what are the shared values within that culture and trying to give some sort of score ranking. So, for example, among the either 150 to 170 nations, he and IBM did this research on the United States ranked number one in terms of having a value for individualism, which would be no surprise. Yeah, um, yeah. Australia, New Zealand, they were up near the top as well. But uh, Hosfidi talked about that we have these three layers of psychological conditioning. First of all, there is some sense in which we have a universal human nature. And, um, you know, similar to what we might see with dolphins or chimpanzees, there are shared behaviors, shared appetites, one yeah. of which might be the desire to, to use tools as humans, to, yeah. to yeah. adapt tools. That seems to be a unique thing that we do better than any other species on the planet. Yeah. But that's not the only layer. For hospitality, you also have culture, which is not simply inherited like our human nature is, but it's inherited and learned. Uh, it's I should say it's primarily learned behavior yes. when we're in culture. And then finally, your, you know, your genetic predispositions, your personality, inherited personality predispositions, which are largely, again, genetically determined. 
the thing for me that I, I wanted to explore with you, because it, it seems like we have this universal human nature, this drive to use um, tools, and then some of these tools and the symbols that we develop become so incorporated into us, it's hard to sift through uh, this is something different from our conscious experience. It almost seems to affect the very experience of consciousness. But the way we receive and make these adaptations to psychotechnologies is via the level of culture. So I'm curious, could you share your thoughts on what um, possible links you see between, you know, culture, distributed cognition, and how, in particular, how psychotechnologies seem to emanate from a top-down experience on us as individuals. So we're enmeshed in culture, but, I, you know, I didn't really individually get to choose literacy in some sense. Yeah, 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 you yeah. know, the culture that I was in from the top-down brought and imported the psychotechnology into me. And yet there's also uh, a um, emergence... Yep. From the bottom up, that you start seeing cultural changes. So, what sort of links do you see between a term that you commonly use, distributed cognition, culture, and this both top down and bottom up effect in which these new psychotechnologies, these new liturgies, spiritual practices can be shaped by culture? but also individuals can play some sort of role in shaping the cultures they inhabit. Yeah, excellent. So let's, let's just be, let's give a, like maybe a concrete example of that top-down, bottom-up that you're talking about. Uh, of course, um, uh, Shakespeare. So Shakespeare doesn't choose literacy, as you say, uh, but what does he do? He uses literacy to create Right, these plays and so much of our language and our phrases and even ways of thinking go back to Shakespeare. Um, so uh, I'm just I'm just trying to give people a concrete uh, example of exactly what you talked about. Right, there's the it's the you know the literacy and the and, and uh, drama are given to him culturally, but then he does this thing to it that, that permeates back out and transforms. Uh, the culture. Now, not, not all individuals have that power, uh, but I'm using him as an exemplar of that, that you know, the emanation and the emergence um, within distributed cognition that um, is afforded and um, accelerated by psychotechnology. So is that a, a good way of capturing yes. what you're Great. talking about? Perfect okay. illustration. Okay. And so, so the, 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 the thing, like, so again, what do, what's the now... What do I think is the connection between distributed cognition and culture? And then we'll bring it back to um, second technologies. So I, I use a metaphor. Um, I'll, I'll use it again because I, people seem to respond to it. People are aware of the internet. They're aware that by linking computers together and getting distributed computation, we massively can increase the amount of information we process, maybe even like to almost a godlike, and I don't mean to be sacrilegious, but almost a godlike proportions. It, it often overwhelms us, and, and it has empowered us to solve problems and communicate, but it's also generated problems that were not, not, not present for us, uh, you know, 20 years ago. Um, people forget. Uh, I grew up largely without access to the internet. For the, I had to go to the library and, you know, photocopy and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. and, 
uh, just as a, a, a the Dewey point. Decimal System. <laughs> yeah, all of that. Okay, so but long before the internet networked computers together to release the power of distributed computation, culture is a networking of humans together to release the power of distributed cognition. Most of our problem solving is not done as isolated individuals. Um, for example, even our conversation here, you and I, we didn't create English, we're not running the electrical grid, we didn't make all this technology, we're not managing Zoom, we're not managing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so, again, and notice how that gets us back to, again, about, notice the deep interconnections behind how we're cyborgs and how we, most of our problem solving is, is done in distributed cognition. And this is, you know, this is particularly difficult for people in North America, because as you said, you know, the United States is the most individualist country in the world. But the idea that most of what we do is done individually is largely false. Um, it, it's a myth. Now, I mean that in, the, in both senses. It's largely false, but it's been a guiding principle. Uh, it's, been, it's been a way of resisting the tyranny of the majority and important political ideas. So, but I want, I want to un people to understand that most of the time you are integrating with distributed cognition to make the machinery of culture. That's why one of the most powerful punishments you can give to somebody is solitary confinement or, or, or turning them into a castaway because they, we, we, are naturally, we've naturally evolved to seek out, um, and, and, and because we're, we're mammals and we're born so prematurely, we're dependent on, like, and I want to say that, I want to, and don't cringe, I'm asking people not to cringe. We are deeply and continuously dependent on the power of distributed cognition. Mm. And then, what, I, what we just said a few minutes ago is what psychotechnologies do is psychotechnologies and, and I basically think of culture as ecosystems of psychotechnologies and technologies interwoven together that basically um, constitute and empower uh, distributed cognition. That's how I understand culture. And, and as you pointed out earlier, not just synchronically, but diachronically, culture gives us the ratcheting effect. Because of distributed cognition within, embodied within culture, I don't have to learn everything from scratch like a gazelle. I can make use of millennia of human achievement, and I, can, I don't have to start from scratch. That's how I understand culture, and psychotechnologies empower and extend, the, synchronically and diachronically, the power, the cultural power of distributed cognition. So what is it that produces cultural change? Um, when so much of these factors seem to be top-down, pressing upon us, and yet you see, I mean, we're going through, I mean, your entire Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series is focused on a long process. I mean, you go, you start from beyond Western Civ, you certainly have pockets of exploring Buddhism and things like that that aren't, aren't Western-focused, but the, the back half of the series seems primarily focused on Western Civ and the Meaning Crisis that's happened. That that seems like what we have are these these forces of com oftentimes competing sometimes complementary subcultures microcultures network together whether they're academic institutions whether they're religious institutions whether they're 
how is it? How can a Shakespeare emerge out of that particular culture that he inhabits and then change and shift and affect a culture when it seems like so much of what we do is the top-down forces? And I don't mean that negatively. Yeah. They're also positive. Yeah. We're, 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 I mean, our, our yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. I mean, our conversation is happening, John, in large part because I think, um, you know, you as an academic that that is not in the same professing faith tradition as I, and I, a Christian pastor, 50 years ago, this conversation, not just from a technology standpoint, but from a values standpoint, would have uh, been a lot more yeah. difficult, maybe even yeah. impossible yeah. to have happened. Yeah. And certainly at other points in history— this sort of thing, you know, we both would be labeled heretics, right? Yep. So something yep. has shifted in the value system of this networked distributed cognition, the networked experience of culture. And to me, it's really fascinating as to what is it that can cause such changes to happen. Um, you know, it's where the individual, the individualism brushes up against. Right. Right. This. Um, do you have any? I mean, do you have yeah. any gut feelings about that, or even maybe beyond that, any sort of research that's gone into the the way cultures shift and change, whether it's on a micro scale or a macro scale? So something in between a gut feeling and a research um, hypothesis, uh, <laughs> hypotheses, and and some initial theorizing. Um, so this is a plausibility argument. I think it's plausible that distributed cognition... So I've got some published research. Uh, there's one paper out in Frontiers of Psychology, one coming out in Presence, and hopefully another one shortly in Phenomenology, Phenomenology Cognitive Science, uh, working with my good friend and colleague, uh, Dan Chiappi. And we've been studying how the NASA scientists, which right is this very small community, uh, learn to do science via the rovers on Mars. Uh, and it, it is this very powerful little tiny microcosm where you can really study these questions uh, and, and how do we form groups and how do groups change um, and, and how do we how do we basically coordinate distributed cognition? It's interesting, and maybe we can talk about it at some point. How there's almost this uh, there's this imaginal, uh, almost religious dimension to these hard nosed scientists. Um, when they're mm. doing this work, that is very fascinating. Um, In what ways would you say religious, or at least has well, the appearance of it? Um, so, one of the things they look for is they look for a, a very interesting capacity, which is the ability to um, see like the rover or to be on Mars, to have a sense of being present on Mars uh, through the virtuality. Um, mm. of the rover. Now, what's interesting about that is normally when human beings uh, like identify, I'm using, uh, in fact, I, I keep using Polanyi's term, indwell. Like when I'm indwelling my sword, I, 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 I feel through it. I sense through it. I act through it. It's not, right? It, it, it's, in the, it's almost transparent to me, which is what I said from the beginning. It's simultaneously familiar but transformative right? because we, we like, and think about how you feel through your clothing. Mm -hmm. Right, uh, and somebody brushes up against your clothing, and you right, and stuff like that. All right, so 
what, what they do is they're looking for the capacity for people to right, see like the rover, see through the rover and be the rover and be on Mars. Um, now, what's interesting about that is they don't have, like, with my clothes or with my sword, I have very, I'm very tightly feedback loop, tightly coupled, what they call in the virtual gaming, I have joystick control, right? They don't have that with the rovers because the time delay, right? So they get batches of information and then they get these, they get basically 2D black and white photographs and they have to somehow generate of the sense of being on Mars so they can do good field work. And what they do is they do this, uh, Vertesi calls it drawing as, they do all this imaginal stuff. They, they mark up the photographs and they do stuff with their imagination and they do it inactively. It's not in their head, it's imaginal. Uh, so for example, you'll get um, uh, one of the scientists who are trying to figure out how to move the rover and she'll say, okay, this is a rock and she'll put her phone down and she's on a swivel chair and she says, what we, and she, her hands are the cameras and she'll say, okay, we need to do this I need to do that. And if I do, oh, right. And, I, and, and then she notices and realizes things. And she does this imaginal identification. But, uh, but they, right, so they... they uh, very shamanistic. They, they tech, pardon, pardon me? Very shamanistic. Very shamanistic. They technomorphize themselves. They become the rover imaginally, through imaginal enactment. They also anthropomorphize the rover. They say, when, they don't, when they're moving the rover, they don't say it needs to go there. They'll say, we need to go there or I need to go there, or we're going to get stuck if we go there, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, so they're, they're doing this loop. They anthropomorphize, and they technomorphize, and it's all this imaginal uh, augmentation, uh, right, so that they can, and what they do is they, she, she actually says it's like, it's like it's totemic for them. The rover becomes this totem through which they bind their identities and through which they get access to the presence of Mars and the Martian landscape in this alien other world. So much so that they will do things like this. These hard-nosed scientists will say, you know, I was in the garden and I kept getting my right wrist stuck and caught. When I was, and I got to the lab and Spirit, that's one of the rovers, interesting its name, by the way, Spirit's <laughs> right wheel was constantly getting stuck. Mm-hmm. That's what they, and they go, I, I, I don't know. I don't, you know, ha ha, there's some kind of sympathetic connection. Do you see what I mean? They're, oh, yeah. they're talking, right? That's what I mean. This shamanistic, mm-hmm. like you said, uh, a kind of spiritual identification, uh, a profound kind of distributed sympathy, and right with the rover. And, and so uh, that's what I mean about like we're studying and we're studying how they, how the scientists organize themselves and coordinate themselves so that they can get this to happen. I'm glad you took the time to explain that because that gets exactly to the nature of my question, which has to do with the the nature of conscious experience. Obviously, in some sense, our, our conscious experience is networked together via culture. I mean, there is a way in which we could say, and I know some, again, Christians would be uncomfortable with this term, and I've used it before, there is a sense in which we have a collective conscious experience. I, I know that sounds maybe more Jungian, but there, there is even in a sense a collective unconscious. I know that was what maybe Jung was more, more focused on. Reductive materialists would say that all of this simply just emerges from the material processes, right? Yeah. 
of our fleshy brains. Um, you know, it's encoded in symbols. We have this, these highly complex ways of decoding and we, we feel this shared conscious experience, even sometimes with what we might say are, are non-living things like the spirit rover, which I just, I love the term. But of course, you have all these sorts of ontologies in many traditional religions, including historic Christianity, that reject, in some way, shape, or form, reject that consciousness is simply reducible to these mechanical material processes. It seems like, as I've gone through your work and I've heard so many conversations between you and Paul Vanderclay and others, that you also seem to have a problem with a reductive materialism that might reduce all of this to simply being, well, it's just our fleshy brains. Is that fair to say? Is that maybe even, if it is true, is that maybe one of the ways that you are able to find yourself being so conversant with Christians and other religious thinkers is that maybe you have a suspicion about consciousness that it can't be purely reduced to a, like a mechanical materialism. So, yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. And um, I had a long, two very long extended discussions with Bernardo Castro around this question. Um, and then I did a, an entire video series with Greg Enriquez called Untangling the World Not. Um, so um, these are profound questions. Um, if we get a chance, I'd like to try and talk, talk about some participant observation of something analogous to the rover, but with something that's more, I don't know what to put it, more, 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 more obviously sort of spiritual in people's experience. That, right? yeah. So we can come back to that. It has to do with what I call dialogos. Um, but let's, let's address the primary question. Um, so the, the, the first thing is I'm hesitant about the term collective consciousness because one of, the, one of the interesting features about distributed cognition is we seem to have uh, an intelligence that supersedes us, but it doesn't seem to possess its own consciousness. Mm, yeah. um, right? And so uh, some, some people call the intelligence and the, even the intentionality of, uh, 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 of the we... They call it a zombie uh, because it, like, a philosophical zombie, it's extremely intelligent, but there's nothing going on there like consciousness. In fact, one of the primary questions of consciousness seems to be, why is it only at this level? Why do I not have consciousness at, you know, why isn't there consciousness in sort of individual neurons? And why isn't there consciousness when I get collective brains together? And, and then you get weird, gray things like, does an ant colony, which clearly has distributed intelligence, does it have an emergent consciousness? And, and so these are all really intertwined and, and interesting questions. Now, if you are open to those questions, hang on, I'm getting a really weird signal here. Hang on, Paul. Yeah, that's okay. There, there's something going wrong with my signal. Are you okay on your end? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if you're really open to these questions, you have to be open to this real possibility. Um, which is the, the reality of levels, um, and not just, their, not just levels of descriptions, but actual sort of levels in, in reality. So let, let, let me try and work this through. Why am I not a materialist? Well, first of all, I don't, I don't know anybody who is. 
Um, so I understand that there's been a history of scientific materialism and it goes back to people like Descartes. But I don't know of anybody who believes in Descartes' idea of matter. So for Descartes, matter is, in, is definitively, and I want to say that again, definitively inert. It is inert, right? And that's all there is. There, and so for, for, for Descartes, there can't even be empty space deposited in ether because everything has to be filled with matter. And matter is inert, absolutely inert. Internal, homogeneous extension, no internal structure, no internal activity. We don't believe that anymore, right? That's, right. Not, that's not how matter is. Matter is inherently self-organizing, dynamic, and it's and in addition to matter, there's there's space and time, and there's relativity and quantum entanglement, and there are causal relations, and there are structural, functional, organizational relations. So most people, uh, I um, now say that they're who, who are, I think are incorrectly labeled material. They would call themselves physicalists, right? Um, right. And what they mean by that is. They don't believe, they believe that everything can ultimately be explained um, from the terms of physics. Now, I reject that as well. Uh, increasingly, a large number of people, researchers myself, think, no, that you, call, you can't, for example, ultimately reduce um, biology uh, to physics. Uh, biology uh, is defined in terms of the capacity for evolution, and evolution is not something that you can explain without invoking historical causal pathways that don't belong to the nomological law structure of science. I won't get too technical, but there's... Right. there's For me, the way, I, the way I'm using it is in the metaphysical sense, right? Yeah. So when we, we're talking about what's ultimate reality, what is that which is necessary... Um, for me, when I talk about a reductive materialist or reductive physicalist, their answer is uh, there's nothing beyond... Uh, what we might say is the closed mechanical universe. There isn't another layer in, in, beyond that, or maybe, you know, maybe there's a multiverse. There's other there's other functions, but the, but the question of ultimate reality is a question of um, of material versus categories that in traditional religions might say are spiritual, right? Well, that's what I'm trying. So. I'm trying to I'm trying to push on that because uh, okay. I'm trying to reduce. Sorry, I'm trying to challenge the either or there because I've tried to argue, as I just did now, that life is not reducible to sort of closed mechanical processes. And just just to be provocative, there's been a long-standing deep um, interpenetration between ideas of spirituality and ideas of life. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not trying to bifurcate the two. I mean, I would actually say that's part of a historic going back to even the Hebrew that's thought. Exactly right. right. That's but what I'm saying is the acknowledgement that even while they may be integrated in some sense, that there is, whether we want to call it consciousness, that consciousness, consciousness my conscious experience is inextricably linked to my, if you will, material brain, my yeah. fleshy brain. You know, I, I was not conscious before this moment. I'm not like origin, you know, thinking that there's a, we have pre-incarnate souls. And then, it, you know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, um, that this is inextricably linked together, but that it's not reducible to but, simply but, that. You also think that about you being a living thing, right? Right. 
Yes. Right? right? And so it's not reducible, uh, but it has what Evan Thompson calls deep continuity. There's a deep continuity between you being a living thing and you being a physi. Uh, there's a deep continuity between your physiology and your physicalness, if I can put it that way. In a similar fashion, uh, there's a deep continuity uh, between you being a living thing and you being an intelligent thing. Um, but, but in the same fashion, it's a deep continuity. It emerges, uh, and it doesn't emerge into some kind of metaphysical independence, but it, right, because right, that's the whole point about 4D cognitive science. Your cognition is inherently embodied and acted, trying to separate you being a cognitive thing from be, you being a living embodied thing is an impossible project, but that doesn't mean I can reduce your intelligence to, for, for one thing, other creatures have other bodies. Uh, we might generate artificial intelligence, which isn't made up of the same kind of physical stuff as us at all, but could, is still uh, intelligent. So, right, you don't want to, you don't want to identify it with, but you, so it's not reducible to, but it's also not independent from. And then I think, and, and the argument I make is that as life is to intelligence, intelligence is to consciousness. Being an intelligent thing, consciousness is something that emerges from, it's not independent from our intelligence, but, but, uh, and not reducible to it, but it's also deeply continuous. Uh, that's why measures, things strongly associated with consciousness, like you being able to keep things in your mind and your working memory, but measures of working memory are almost on parity with measures of general intelligence. There's deep overlap between the relevance realization going on in intelligence and consciousness. So what I'm trying to show you is this, right? This, this, every time we're moving up a level of emergence, we're also disclosing a level of emanation the other way. Yes. And so I think of the position, when you, if you have that non-reductive uh, uh, of physicalism, uh, and all that means is that I, I, I can't, I can't come up with any of these levels as being somehow inconsistent. So the biology is non-reducible, but it can't be inconsistent with the physics. You can't, biologists can't say, oh, you know what evolution does? It breaks the law, the second law of thermodynamics. No, it doesn't. No, no, you can't possibly do that. Okay, so I call that naturalism, that non-reductive, right, where you've yeah. got real emergence and real emanation. That's uh, the difference between, what I guess, the core what i'm getting at is the th what is the thing that would make has made you such a um more charitable conversation partner with people like me than if instead i was sitting down with daniel dennett or richard dawkins there seems there seems to be a difference there in that um even though there's obvious disagreement there is a, a degree of mystery to the conscious experience that you seem yeah. open to that at least in some way maps on to whether it is Christianity, whether it's Hinduism, what, that there are these traditional religions that have affirmed there is in some sense, um, if you will, let me just grab from like David Bentley Hart, for example. Please, I've read some of Hart. Okay, so uh, con con Experience of Consciousness Being in Bliss, great book. Right. I might have butchered the title there, but that it's in some sort of order, <laughs> Consciousness yeah. Being bl Bliss. Um, for like Hart, David Bentley Hart argues, he makes the case that our experience of consciousness is a real, however finite participation in God's consciousness, or in some sense, we might say uh, an, an ultimate consciousness, a necessary consciousness, a bedrock layer by which 
in some sense, we are plugged into, even though it is finite. It's something that emanates. We talk about emanates for yes. those that are watching the video here, top down, right? Emergence, bottom up. Right. Um, I guess the thing I'm, I'm trying to get at is there are voices that say it is only emergence in some sense. Yes, yes. On multiple layers. Like yeah. you, you could get even to certain degrees of panpsychists that are saying consciousness is simply a bottom up thing. And I'm saying like, Traditionally, religion, various religious traditions have emphasized, no, there is a top-down emanation by which we are participants. Again, I'll, I am a fan of Hart's framework, that there is this fundamental, ultimate, necessary, bedrock layer of consciousness that we call God, right? Yeah. The, that which I can think no higher than that I derive my being from, that all contingent conscious experiences participate in in some way, shape, or form. Is it true, like, am I sensing or am I misreading that what makes you a, a, a good conversation partner with people in religious traditions is at least a, a sense in which you, you're down for the hunt, the, 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 the philia Sophia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much the dance. Of, the dance yes, of figuring out where this rabbit trail of consciousness might actually lead to uh, in a way that's not close to it being that there ha the possibility of some sort of ultimate or necessary consciousness. So that, I, I'm very, first of all, I mean, uh, uh, I was, it was close to eight hours of uh, extended conversation with Bernardo Castro, who is an analytic idealist. He does think that reality is fundamentally a uh, uh, qualitative experience. Um, and, uh, uh, and so I'm, I'm, I, I have a lot of respect, even affection for Bernardo. We definitely got into deep dialogos. And so I... I take that position very seriously. Um, I, I tend to have, a, and this may be odd saying this to a Christian, um, <laughs> given the deep interpenetrations between Neoplatonism and Christianity, um, I tend to have a, a more sort of Neoplatonic take on it. So let me try it this way. I agree with you. People who are, just like I think, uh, uh, you know, I argue that there are symmetrical problems for emanation and emergence. Emergence can't, why does it all come together? Emergence can't explain that. And then emanation is, why does it ever break apart? Right? Mm, and yeah, equal yeah. mysteries. And so this is where I'm deeply influenced by people like, uh, ultimately, uh, John Scottus Eregina, who I think is the, uh, the, the epitome uh, of Christian Platonism. And, and the idea is that every moment of emergence discloses a moment of emanation, and vice versa. Every place where we point to how eternal constraints uh, are shaping time in, requires emergence. They are interdependent, interdefining. Uh, they're right, and, 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 and he ultimately sees God as therefore, and I mean this in a deeply metaphysical sense, as dialectical in nature, not in the Hegelian sense, but yeah. in this you know, Platonic sense. So what that means for me, and this is an idea I get from Pearl, who uh, whose uh, book on uh, Dionysus, uh, Dionysus, the Areopagite, uh, Theophany, and his other books, on, uh, other work on Platonic. He's, I, I think he's one of the great 
you know, Platonists of, the, of our time. Whoever he was, pseudo Dionysus, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, pseudo Dionysus, whoever he is. But Pearl's work on that, and Pearl's work on uh, thinking, uh, thinking of being. I think this is the title of his book. I'm probably butchering it. One of the a really great book on classical um, metaphysics um, and epistemology. Gerson and other. Anyways, here's the idea that there is a deep relationship of participation between levels of our psyche and levels of reality. So at the level of just being a, a physical emergent thing, I'm plugged into, if you'll allow me that metaphor, think of it almost like the like we were talking about earlier, I'm plugged into this, this sort of phusis, the Greek called it, which doesn't mean what we call physics today. It means the sheer blossoming, the, the springing forth, the bursting forth of things that, you know, Whitehead emphasized that, how the, the new things just keep happening, right? And, and so that, and, and, and I when I just sort of, and then at the, le, and then at the level of sort of like being a, a, a self-organizing uh, a, a living thing, I, I pick up on, I plug into how the universe has, is so self-organizing, solar systems and tornadoes, et cetera, et cetera. And then I'm a living thing, right? And, and, and that means that I'm making sense of the world. And then I pick up on the fact that the world, I plug into that the world is ordered and has intelligibility. There's something about it that's mind-like, intelligent-like, just like there's something like it that's vital. And there's something about it that's like present and emergent. And then when I go to consciousness, consciousness gives me, right, this unity in multiplicity and this multiplicity in unity. This is the weird phenomenon and mystic to draw this out. And we get we get the fact that right that it's a world, right? Yeah. I have an inner world and it plugs into the outer worlding. That there's this holographic holism to yeah. things. The interface. Right? Yes. And then and, and then beyond that, there is what the Greeks, you know, the Neoplatonic called kenosis, oneness, right? There's this, and, and sort of at the level of myself, right? Not the ego, but this, the, the, almost the union sense, the sum total, right? Uh, organizing principle of my psyche, and that somehow plugs it, and it's, right? And notice how it's not present to me, but it's constantly structuring me, and there's something that I plug into reality and kenosis, and, and, and there's something like, the way the, the universe is, or I would now I'd call it, the cosmos is wanting and I'm wanting, that there are two species of the same genus. Now, does that mean that what's out there is consciousness? For me, I don't like to do that because for me, um, that, and, and, and you know, Plotinus made that argument. He said, you know, if the one is thinking, then it's not ultimately one. If the one is unfolding in time, like your consciousness, then it's not ultimately the one. Right. Like, right, right. And so what well, people are You have to have the mediating layer of the noose or the logos, right? Yes, exactly. Which is what brings the, um, the, 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 what's beyond all categorization into some sort of level of perception. Right. And that's why you've got the deep interpenetration of those three hypostases um, from Neoplatonism and the three hypostases, because that's actually the term used in the creeds. It's not right. persons. The right. three hypostases of the Trinity, yes. And so for me, I read, uh, and I think this jives with how, you know, the, the, the mystics talk about God, for example. Um, and so for me, I say calling it consciousness, it would be for me like calling it life. 
Do you really think it's a biological living thing? No, but there's something about life that discloses something about this fundamental nature of reality. So it's appropriate that, you know, that's, you know, Erigina says, it's not life because life, it, 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 life depends on it, but it's in some sense the cause, not the event cause, but the, but the metaphysical cause of life. And therefore, some, life discloses an aspect of ultimate reality that would never be disclosed in a lifeless universe. Totally. Intelligence discloses yeah. things and so on and so on and so on. And it's so those that, sorts of shared frameworks that allow you to be conversant with others that maybe hold to those similar convictions, even if... Not only that, but conversant with the world. Yeah, yeah. Right? You, you and the world plug together, fit together. So it's, you, yes, so you and yourself, you and others, and you and the world all fit together in this mutual participation. So, you know, like I said... The, the intelligibility with me, within me and the intelligibility without are two species of the same genus. But also your intelligibility and my intelligibility are two instances of the so, same species. Of the I guess same, I meant right? more specifically, John Verveke has particular ontological convictions that allows him to enter into dialogues with Paul and Leitner, right? Because we have this shared framework in a way that it would make it more difficult, again, if I was, you know, sitting with Dawkins right oh, now yeah. or, some, or someone else. That, that shared framework, that there's layers of questions. The one part of the question was getting at that sort of mystery of consciousness and our connection yeah. to it all, but also the other part of, well, what, what does John Verveke feel or believe about, or at least is intrigued about the nature of consciousness that allows him as an individual to have charitable dialogue, nuanced, uh, oriented yeah. towards what I believe is like I, I'd like to say, and you can correct me on this, John, feel free to, but I, I feel a sense of a shared orientation towards a telos, a shared telos when I have conversation with you or I listen to you, even though um, maybe you don't feel that way. But when I listen to you talk with Paul Vanderclay, I feel like there's, um, we're standing on different convictional locations, if you will. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yet there is this participatory desire towards a telos that transcends us and that that allows us to hunt together if you will follow that follow the scent yeah i like that see see, unlike dawkins well i've I've already indicated many ways in which i'm unlike dawkins i think of myself as a naturalistic neoplatonist some neoplatonists were like what i'm like but what i mean by that is like People only look downward in in, in deductive derivation. They say only what can be deduced from the sciences exists. That's that's ridiculous. You also have to ask yourself, what is presupposed by all the sciences, right? What is presupposed? Intelligibility is presupposed. Order is presupposed. Self-organization is presupposed. That possibility is structured is presupposed. That actuality is structured is presupposed. That possibility and actuality are co-structured. Oh, boom, and then that gets you. I would argue, and other people are arguing, Berman's book on Platonism and the object of science, that science presupposes Platonism in a profound way. Uh, Tyson's book, uh, uh, Schindler's book, like, so, so much of it. I, I'm not a lone voice. Many people are coming to realize we have to pay attention not only what is deducible from our science, but also what is deeply metaphysically and ontologically presupposed by our science. Right, and right. in that way, 
I think I'm open to, yeah, there's a telos of opening myself up to and, and with, uh, opening myself with other people, opening myself up to, you know, I, I'll use a metaphor here and I mean it as a metaphor, higher dimensions of being. Yeah. I, I, I'm interested not only in the mystery of consciousness, I'm interested in the mystery of intelligence, the mystery of life. I mean, I'm interested in the mystery of real possibility. What is it? What is possibility? We can, our, 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 our technical definition of information depends on there being real possibility. Our conservation laws depend on real possibility. What is it we're talking about when we're talking about real possibility? These mm-hmm. are all things that deeply um, open me up. And what I've found, um, and I'm finding it right now with you, is there's a resonance. Somehow that opening up um, resonates with, with people. I, I happen to think there's something profoundly right. I'll have lots of criticisms of it. There's something profoundly right about the Neoplatonic approach to epistemology and ontology that I think we're both, it gives us a, a shared language mm-hmm. by which we can resonate with each, with each other. I mean, one of the things you have to acknowledge is the deep attraction ongoing and profound that Christianity has had with Neoplatonism. Uh, and oh, there's yeah. a reason for that. I think there's a reason for that. Well, yeah. And for me, my, my own theological framework, I'm in keeping with what I see as the early patristics like Justin Martyr, who, yeah. uh, Irenaeus, who maybe made a distinction between what we might call the, the philosophical theism of the Greeks versus the paganism. Obviously, in many yeah. ways, the, the early church fathers had some very harsh language against paganism. But in some sense, we, I mean, we see this blueprint in Acts 17, Paul's on Mars Hill, and he's talking with the Athenian philosophers, and he says, I see this statue that you have here to your unknown God. And he's actually really complimentary. He sees, says, I see that you men are religious, yeah. you know, that you have great religious zeal. And then he actually, he doesn't quote from the Hebrew scriptures at all. He quotes from two poems to Zeus yeah. as an analogous, um, as a way of saying, I think there's some shared even though our language is missing here, he's very complimentary to that. But yet, I believe it's just the chapter before, he casts out the Pythia spirit from the slave girl in Acts 16, who their masters, of course, are are, are making money off of this girl that probably had some affiliation with the Oracle of Delphi. What was she saying? She's actually, as she's saying, these men are sent by by God Most High. She's actually speaking something true. They've been... um, I, I share those as a as a blueprint because early on there did seem to be some sense in which, uh, gosh, was it? It may have may have been Clement of Alexandria, yeah. and not uh, Justin Martyr, who, who essentially said that for the Greeks, what God was doing in in Plato was analogous to what He was doing in the Torah with the Jews. So I have no problem affirming that. I know that's like we're not getting a Trinitarian framework. <laughs> in the creeds without all of those guys swimming in the cultural sea that was Platonism and later Neoplatonism. But I also have no problem with that because I also understand my my cultural theology is that the, the Logos Christ is always made manifest within culture. There is no unseparated from culture communication. And if God, you said dialogical, if God is dialogical or at least communicative in his very nature, which would be a core Christian expression, right? Jewish as well. God said, let there be light as his first act, a communicative act. In the beginning was the word communication. Uh, I have no, there's no way to separate the fact that 
the revelation, the emanation always happens in a culture, uh, in cultured communication. So I've got no problem with the the mapping of Neoplatonism. In fact, in some ways, I see my own perspective is akin to what C.S. Lewis came to believe in things like yeah. the discarded image, which again, for me, and I, you know, I'm not asking for your agreement on this. I see Christ as the fulfillment of those sorts of even some of the pagan longings and symbolisms and Christians very early on took and adapted images like the Phoenix, for yeah. example. I mean, a totally, you know, pagan symbol and you see them in these Christian catacombs and they, uh, the shepherd of, um, the shepherd of Hermes, right? That that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. symbol yeah. of Hermes carrying a sheep, uh, we see that easily translate later into images of Christ. So I, I don't have any problem with this. You said one thing that was really interesting, John, that I want to pick out a bit, because you mentioned even by analogy and metaphor, and even reticent in saying this phrase, um, that you are open to higher levels, you know, that there are yeah. higher levels. And I'm curious, is that, you know, Traditional religions, in some sense, though we wouldn't always use this language, have always been open to psychotechnologies, particular spiritual practices, opening us up to different states of conscious experience that move us from, I mean, I just had it, and this doesn't happen every week, I want to be clear, I just had it this past Sunday. Um, our, Our sanctuary is once again filled with people. Um, the mask mandates have been lifted. People are being vaccinated. And the sound of people's voices, I'm sitting yeah. in the front row getting ready. You know, I don't preach every week. I'm sitting in the front row and this wall of voices around me yeah. and also the sound from the speakers yeah. in, in yeah. front uh, of singing hymns together. I was enraptured in that moment. It took me from a different state of consciousness than what I had an yeah. hour before the service um, so that's always been part of religious experience, uh, incorporation of psychotechnologies, particular practices to change those states of consciousness that in some sense we would say open us up. I feel it as an opening up to that, that ground of all being. When you practice Tai Chi and meditation, are you seeing yourself as doing practices that level, allow you to level up in a sense, in a state of consciousness. Why do you do those practices beyond just, we know that there are physiological benefits to things like meditation, to doing something like Tai Chi or prayer, beyond just therapeutic purposes, is there a sense in which you find yourself going, I, I, I do think there's something beyond at least this conscious state, these practices open me up to that. And I feel that there is some, some access of the true good and beautiful happening when I practice Tai Chi or meditation. Well, very much so. I mean, I think there's sapiential and existential transformations that occur. I've talked about those at length elsewhere. Um, but to, towards the leveling up, yeah, I do think that in, 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 in my practices, I very much am doing that moving through the levels of, uh, of, co- of co-participation. That's what I mean by participatory knowing, and it's being transformed. And, I, I, and against um, modernism, and I mean by that what happened in the Enlightenment, right? I do not believe, I, I, we gave, one of the things that happened in modernity was the idea that, we, that truths required transformation. 
science has disclosed, yes, there are a lot of truths <coughs> that do not require transformation. I do not want to, I do not want to deny that. But we also are getting good, uh, I think, good science, good cognitive science pointing towards that there are truths that are only capable through transformation, that only through these transformative processes will certain truths about reality be disclosed to me. Uh, and, and I talk, you know, make use of the great work of L.A. Paul, Transformative Experience, Agnes Kellard, Aspiration, other things like that, doing experimental work on awe and how it might open us up in ways that we can't open ourselves up, things like that. So very, very much what I'm realizing in both senses of the word in these practices is um, depends on which metaphor you want to use, deeper and deeper and higher and higher. I think we should use both <laughs> yeah. together uh, aspects of reality. Uh, I think the practice that I engage in that would be maybe perhaps most resonant for uh, what you just described when you go to church is when I do dialogos practices, like philosophical fellowship, dialogos, circling practices. Um, because, well, let me suggest, I have more rigorous arguments, but I'll do this in a suggestive manner. Let's say that there's something fundamentally right about Erigena's idea about reality unfolding in this uh, dialectical fashion. And right, and then in that sense, it's it's as you said, it's dialog, it's dialogical. It is the if you don't mind me trespassing here, it's the incarnation right and the resurrection of the logos, right? The 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 downward and the upward, right? Um, but that is also the case between people. So when you do circling practices, what happens? Remember the scientists on Mars, and I said I wanted to come back to this. What happens is you develop. And we talked about this last time in individuals, but you can develop a collective flow state. You can develop a flow state that's not running on individual cognition, but that's running on distributed cognition. And people, and what happens is, first of all, people they just find it intrinsically meaningful to be of this intimate, I don't mean sexual, mm -hmm. intimate connection to other people, right? But then what starts happening is they, they start, well, you, you watch people go through this developmental progression. First, they're just like, they're so right intimate with uh, others, and that that meaningfulness of that connection is just oh. But then what they start to do is they start to sense a, a, an intimate connection with the presence of they call it they call it different things the we space right the spirit the, I call it the logos because it's very much like like it's in the language but it's beyond the language. Remember Heraclitus said, "Don't listen to my words, but listen to the logos within them." Right, and then so what people get is they get. And I'm publishing on this with Christopher Master Petro. They get this intimacy with the logos, and then some people go a little bit further, and that's something that Guy Sandstock, the guy who invented circling, and I are exploring. They go from intimacy with the logos to intimacy through the logos, which is that the logos is just like life and intelligence and consciousness. The logos discloses aspects of the intelligibility of reality that are otherwise not disclosed to us. It puts us in touch with reality in a different way that we are not familiar with. So we are simultaneously in touch with each other, with the logos, and then with, with, with aspects of reality, the intelligibility of reality that are otherwise inaccessible to us. And people find that profoundly 
powerful. And, and, and if you, it, it, it's a, it, what seems to be happening, again, I just got to be suggestive here. Mm-hmm. There's more rigorous argumentation available. Is that collective intelligence is being transformed into collective wisdom. And, and people are, and remember that most of the words for wisdom go back to seeing, mm-hmm. but, 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 but not, not physical seeing, seeing in the sense of realizing, become aware of, connecting, seeing into the depths of reality in a way that they hadn't before. And so I think, and I don't mean anything insulting by it, I think um, that what's happening, you know, where two or three are gathered under my name, there I am also, right, uh, right? Uh, that what's happening in a good church service, a good gathering, ecclesia, is something is something like that. Now, hmm. the way you'll differ from me is you think there's an extra notch to it, and I'm not I'm not in the place to deny that. I'm not in the place to confirm it. I don't. But for me, I can understand a lot of what you're talking about from this particular framework that hmm. I and not in a dismissive. I'm not saying it's all of no, it. Yeah, yeah, it's no. powerful. It's important. Yeah, it's transformative. It, it 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 curates. It creates and curates your your our group and our individual capacities for wisdom. That is deeply, deeply important, and gives us profound experiences of meaning, meaning in life, connectedness, religio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I may, I'd, I'd like to give a little push as to why I would say there's another level. Sure. And it, I could even use internal in my own particular tradition. We have to have a way of making a value judgment as to whether or not the shared experience is aiming us towards wisdom, towards right. our good, towards right. the good of the whole. Um, and even in my own, even in Christianity, there's a long history of debate about what sorts of mystical experiences yeah. constitute something that is a c- connectivity with the Logos, with the, uh, with the Holy Spirit, with um, it, uh, constitutes a genuine moment of communion with God, or because we also have in our tradition, as to others, the existence of what we might say are intermediary agencies that can affect that conscious experience. So I I can borrow the language from St. Paul, principalities and powers. Others might be more comfortable with hyper-objects, for example, that there are these mediating levels. And so what I have to be able to do is to be able to even make a value judgment as to whether or not, and again, I'll keep it to my tradition to make sure the critique is pointed internally. Um, (laughs) There has been plenty of experiences, especially in charismatic and Pentecostal circles, where certain things happen in that, that, that dialogos, that, um, that's circling a lot. I mean, I've I've been in drum circles that have had similar shamanistic sorts of rituals to them, yep, yep. and certain things have manifested themselves that bring particular Christian leaders to a point of debate on whether or not what is manifesting itself is what we would say is the spirit of Christ, or even for some Christians are uncomfortable with this terminology, even if you want to just use it on a psychological level, what we might say is demonic, right? right? Which isn't for good. It's actually disordered. And we can certainly see this in so many different states of altered conscious, altered states of consciousness that simply leveling beyond ourselves, to me, doesn't seem like um, 
satisfactory enough as a value judgment. We have to make, I mean, you brought, you had this conversation with Jordan Peterson recently, just came out this week. And, um, you know, at least one point in which you guys were efforting towards dialogue, Peterson brought up this question of like value hierarchy and what becomes relevant and salient to us. Let's take, um, again, I'll stick with my own tradition. Um, Let's take a, a worship service where there's a lot of spontaneity, speaking in tongues. Again, those aren't even normal experiences at my own church anymore. But speaking in tongues, uh, you know, uh, glossilia, yeah. there is uh, dancing. There are, for lack of a better term, what we, this is what we'd actually call manifestations where people would, you know, you've seen them in Shakers and Quakers yeah. too. Yeah. Um, to be able to identify, what is <clears throat> what is relevant and salient in that moment, whether or not you manifest these things, largely has to do with your value system. So if you come into one of those meetings and you go, I don't value these things, you're more than likely not going to experience them, yeah. right? Um, if it's against the same way, you if you value it, if you're open to that being for your good, you are more likely to have that experience in and of itself. So the question I have is when we just simply stop and say, well, and I'm saying you're saying, I just simply want to stop there. Maybe there's just a healthy degree of agnosticism about the levels beyond that, which I can appreciate it too, but maybe a bit of, you know, Kantian (laughs) doubt about what goes, what, what we can say beyond that. If we don't acknowledge there's a beyond that, how could we make a value judgment to say, we're actually cultivating wisdom together versus something that might be some sort of, we'll take some crazy extreme, like a occultic Nazi ritual in the old Reichstag. Sure. And, yeah. and what they're <laughs> tapping into might be a, a principality in power. It might be a, a hyper object <laughs> yeah. that is actually not aimed towards the one, if you want to use the Neoplatonic language, or in the Christian tradition, the, the worship should be aimed towards the Father, you know, towards the Logos, towards Christ, towards the, the triune God. But, but this is exactly the point, and this is exactly, so yes, uh, I, 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 yes, this is a fantastic question, this is exactly the point. This is the crux of the matter, right? And this is partially why I'm working very hard with, uh, with Guy Senstock to, you know, move circling into Dialogos and Dialogos into Philia Sophia. How do we make sure that there is actually, that we are enacting and participating in the love of wisdom, as opposed to the love of power or the love of race, to use your example. Himmler apparently did these kinds of weird rituals. Uh, and so that's exactly the issue. Now, the, the, I, I think the question is, well, I'm saying, I think it's the, the question. It's the question, it's one of these sort of four questions that, vexes me and inspires me right now um, because this is, and, and you made allusion to this and, 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 and I, you know, and I, I, I want to be careful because we're in fellowship together and I don't want to trespass on that. Don't worry but, about it. <laughs> we invoked yeah. Buddhism and yeah. Taoism and in shamanism and, and, I, and, and, I, and I don't want to say, and, I, and it sounds like your theology doesn't want to say, there's no way in which there's goodness or truth or beauty happening in those religions or oh, practices. No, I would never say that. Yeah. Right. So right. So that that, that brings that brings you know the, the reality of pluralism here. Mm-hmm. Right. So 
what we, we have to say is, uh, so I'm willing to say the following, and you won't fully agree, but I'm trying to show how far I can move towards Yeah, you. that's great, yeah. I'm willing to say that for, for many individuals, the Christian framework with, and, and I mean this, the, the imaginal framework and the philosophical framework, um, what you might call it, they come together sort of maybe in the liturgical framework, is indispensable. Just like English is indispensable to my cognition. But you wouldn't say, well, you can't be cognitive if you don't have English. You have to have a language, right? Right. And so I want to say that there are important universals that are going to be found. And insofar as there are universals, science can study them. And insofar as science can study them, science can give us guidance about what's functional and what's malfunctional. And then we can use that to make judgments about, are we actually improving our capacity to overcome self-deception? Are we improving our capacity to pursue long-term goals? By their fruits, you shall know them. Can we enhance the mm-hmm. fruition of virtue and wisdom and meaning? And if we can, then for me, that would be how I would say we would try to curate and criticize in the, in the, in the more expansive sense yeah. of critique yeah. uh, any of these events, any of these practices, and say, well, you know, looks like this is happening. Uh, like to use some of my language, is this is this generating reciprocal narrowing? Is it generating reciprocal opening? Is it affording a distributed cognition that's solving more problems, or is it affording a distributed cognition that's causing more problems? Yeah, yeah. Going, right, right. Lots of that's how I would say it. And now, yeah. I, I don't want to move into an apologetic either. Here, I don't yeah, want to no, make it no, clear, no. John. I'm not trying to make an apologetic. I'm actually trying to sift through this because. The, yeah, the question yeah. I still come up with right away, what you said is good or what you said is a not good, when you said what we can do with science is be able to say this is what is good and this is what is not, isn't, maybe you didn't, I know you didn't say good and what is not good, oh, but yeah, what yeah, is yeah, functional, yeah. What, functional yeah. and malfunctional, Yeah, right? It presupposes a narrative structure underneath by which that value judgment can be made, does it not? Like, well, does it or doesn't it? I mean, so you've got Platonism yeah. and Spinoza and others that say, no, no, what it actually presupposes is, right, our best possible model of what a human being is and therefore what the best possible life for a human being could be. And, right. and insofar as that's, and you're right, science can't give us that. Science actually presupposes it. Science presupposes it in a, in a fundamental way. And we could get, get, get into that at some point. So the degree to which um, we have an independent, and that's why, uh, by the way, that's why you, uh, making an argument on the behalf of your position, you could say, well, we, we need a model that we can, that, that through narrative empowers us to enact. I need a model like psychotechnologies that uh, indwells me, internalizes, and that I can dwell within, indwell, and, and Christ provides a living model for me. And, 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 and I talk in my work about the need for internalizing the sage. But what I would say again is, what, right, again, I came to that sort of out of the cognitive science. Like, well, how do children develop? They internalize adults who have broader, more encompassing perspectives. Why do we think the adult's perspective is better? Well, we think it's better because, and then we give all these answers about what, what a human being is and what a good life is. So is that presupposed? Yes. Now, 
Is that something that we should just presuppose without question? No, we should question it. And science, it doesn't, can't generate it, but it gives us the tools by which we can question it and provoke it to trying to be the best it can be. I don't think that model should stop being self-correcting in any manner. And see, so on the other side, the, the, for me, the, the dark side of religious experience for me is that the, what I've, I've tended to encounter dog, dogmatic ossification of the model and, and a refusal to accept that it, like everything else for us, it has to be epistatic. It has to be constantly self-transcending and self-correcting. Mm-hmm. And so that's, so that's my hesitancy. Oh, I, I feel it. I feel it yeah. too, because we have in, well, again, I'll stick with my own tradition as well. We have been reticent to accept essentially universally held scientific findings because it countered a, a specific narrative that we had been taught. For example, yeah. whether it's the yeah. age of the earth or, you know, yeah. The, yeah. The, the, the Darwin's work, right? Um, yes. it's, it, it, we're guilty of the same, the same thing, but the, guess, the place that I can come back to is to be able to say, all right, there's still, even beyond that, there's still a... If I'm going to make a value judgment on whether, see, this is how it was pitted to me when I was younger, science or faith. If I'm going to make, have to make a value judgment on choosing between this story and this story, where is my compass aimed? And I'm saying there has to be a bedrock. And this is where, again, I know I'm still in some sense in the Christian narrative, using it to critique a particular sub-Christian narrative, but and I know it's not just universal. I think this is why we're able to dialogue is because you could say, well, it's also part of a Neoplatonic narrative. It's also part of this narrative that there is a, there is a, there is a fount of all truth, goodness, and beauty. There's a source. There is. And so, um, you know, that allows me a framework to go and be like, okay, this framework affords me the ability to say, even within my Christian narrative and the sub-Christian narrative, which said, you can't believe that the earth is more than 10,000 years old. I was able to consult something higher than that, that sub-narrative and say, oh, no, no, no. There's actually, okay, deeper theological truths here. If God is good and he's oriented himself to be disclosed and known in the world, and he's given us vehicles to be known and to know the world, then I can fully explore all of these vehicles and see where they lead, right? And so for me, that allowed me and afforded me the opportunity to be like, well, and again, the Christian theological term is general revelation. The general revelation here is pointing to a much older earth, you know, a much older cosmos. Um, But I had to still do that. And what I'd like to be able to say is that this affirmation, the the affirmation of the imminence of God and yet the ultimate transcendence of God affords me the ability to say God is at work here present within this cultural context and story. And yet I also always have to remain open to transcendent truth, a truth that transcends where I'm at so that I would be able to repent and metanoia to see things a new way than what I saw them before. But I still have to go to some reference point right? Uh, And that's, I'm not saying it's solid and here's, here it is. And I'm just going to Jesus smuggle this right into the conversation. (laughs) I didn't know that was a verb. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, 
I feel like what allows a shared conversation between you and I and you and others in divergent faith traditions is at least, okay, is there another level that we could keep exploring together? But I also wonder too, and this gets maybe to like, you know, a a Tom Holland critique, Paul's brought this up plenty of times, is that we are so swimming in this particular culture that's indebted to a particular narrative that has instilled us with these values of what is true, good, and beautiful, that scientists, I'm not saying you, but maybe even Dawkins says, well, we ought to live this way in the world. And they're they're not even fully aware that they're importing that value system, the ethics of it from a particular story of the world. And, um, you know, I, I just... I don't see there being a place where we could go and be like, well, we can't, maybe a hyper postmodernism, which is to say there is no meta narrative that is uh, not a mask for a play for power. Like, I, we have to have some shared meta narrative framework. And how do we get there together? At this point now, I feel like I'm just babbling and I need to let no, you no, talk, no. John. I, I, I like everything you're saying. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think. I think the argument of Holland and Van der Klee, Paul, you know, that a lot of uh, a lot of a lot a lot of this is, is burning the fumes of Christianity, um, and, 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 and therefore I think it should be rightly criticized. Like even the performative contradictions, like Dawkins getting up and giving a speech on how how useless religion is, and then people line up to have him sign a copy of his book for them, right. which is a completely religious act. Right, right. Like, how could ink on a piece of paper, right, that's been mass-produced somewhere else, like, how is it connecting you yeah, to this I guy? I don't mean to make him into a boogeyman archetype. That, that's another thing Christians can have a no, temptation no, I'm, to do. But I'm trying yeah. to give an example. I, I, yeah. I'm trying to give an example of the fact that what you're, what you're trying to point out to is that they are, not only are they, I, I'm trying to extend the point, not only are they running on the fumes of Christianity, they are actually still running off of religio. They are, and and right. I have arguments as to why that must be the case. Um, and so I, I, I wasn't trying to vilify him. I was trying to deepen your point and say, no, no, I, I think it's, I think it's, I, I, I think that human beings are in, in, in an important sense. I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not denying the Holland historical argument, but I think there's a, a, a there's a, a different argument, which is, Human beings, I think, are constitutively religious in nature. That's yeah. what—that's the point I'm making, and yeah. I think that—that—that's—that's that's important. Now, because of that, I am going to connect this. I do think there's another level, and the level that you're talking about is the level that I'm also very concerned with, very interested in, and, and that I—I I, I experience it transformatively, and I reflect upon it scientifically, which is what I call the sacred. Which, but I propose that. Exactly the thing you said should be foregrounded as a feature of sacredness, which is it is, and I use that language, it is an inexhaustible fount of intelligibility, right? You can continually go to it and come back from it, like almost like going to another culture, like an anthropologist. Yep, yep. And you come back and you see things anew. You have metanoia. God, if you'll allow me, I, I mean this in a, in, a, in a praise fashion, not a condemning fashion. God is like, you know, the, the far country of Aslan's country. God is like the, the place where you go, like Narnia, so that you can return and see this world anew. And God, 
or the sacred never ceases totally. being that for you. That's the and prophetic are, path of ascent and descent of the prophet. Yes. And yes. you are, and if you are in, if you are, if you're, I'll use your metaphor. If your compass is pointing towards an inexhaustible fount of intelligibility and metanoia that is transformative of people reliably towards virtue, that, that I don't know what else, what other standard would you, you would use. I, I know, some, like, to me, yeah, yeah. like... Well, you have well, to have a logos, though, because if it's inexhaustible, there's a almost a fine line. I, I sometimes feel a kindredness with Buddhism in some sense, because there's yeah. it almost feels like at a certain point, the infinite becomes a certain sense of nothingness, because it feels so... You can't get there, and so but, but, that's but why, it, like, that's why yeah, I feel but, like you have to have you have to have a logos. You have you to do. have the word made flesh. But, but that's the, that's what I'm saying. I, I didn't say it's just inexhaustible. I said it's inexhaustible fount of intelligibility. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and, and and this is the Neoplatonic idea, right? That intelligibility that there is a there is a a non logical identity between intelligibility and realness. That's that's. I think that's what, you know, and it goes back to the pre-Socratics, that's what the, the notion of logos is trying to point towards. And so uh, there's a moreness that there's, there's a sense of it's coming from something beyond me, this intelligibility, but there's a suchness. It is relevant to me. It's transformative to me. But it's an inexhaustible fount of intelligibility. That, for me, is the, the compass point uh, uh, that I, I think people are orienting towards. And what, what, What we can, I think, what we could, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitating because I want to speak very carefully. I think that there are, like I said, I think we are properly understood as fundamentally religious beings, beings that are, are, are uh, participate in meaning and the self-transcendence of our meaning-making capacities and that orient us towards that which gives us an inexhaustible fount of intelligibility. To, to reach which that's universal, it can be understood and not explained away, but understood, please hear the word I'm saying, understood scientifically, understood in terms of cognitive science. I, and, I, and I get, and I don't fight against, but I also don't accept that individual religious faith groups want to add an extra inflection to that, a specificity. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where, and that is where we do part company. Yeah. As, like, like, and, and, um, I mean, I, I'm worried on the, I, I have the opposite worry of Holland. I worry precisely because we're so wrapped up in this, we think that there is no other way, right? And, and, and so his argument for dominion is, for me, a worrying argument. It's not a happy argument. It's like, uh, that just might be that we're all just locked into something for so long that it's very hard for us to question it and pose an alternative to it. And that's why we uh, need so the postmodern critique. Yes, is because yes. that has been Christendom has been a narrative that has massed a play for power, and I get concerned. I was talking uh, was it last week, maybe last week, I was talking with Paul Vanderclay about this, and Jonathan Peugeot has been talking about this universal history that they had in the medieval era, and I I do find that sort of worrying, yeah. um, because that presupposes linking this all the way back maybe to the top of our conversation, um, a cultural supremacy. Yes. Right. And so I also have to hold to these concerns that if I'm going to be internally consistent, my own story, here, I also have to hold to these concerns that cultures can be affected 
cultures can become hyper objects, but there can also yeah. be yeah. a sense in which they're inter, from my perspective, they're those intermediary levels, yeah. what we, whether we'll call them principalities, powers, what is the thing that drives a Hitler towards his aim? It, to me, that's spiritual. In all every sense of the word, it's an invisible value that he's trying to make manifest. I'll use like Dwight Hopkins' language of yeah. spirit, aesthetic, and labor, that the spirit is the domain of those invisible values, those guiding stories that don't become visible until they're made manifest in art and in the way we work with our hands and the laws that create. I'm just trying to say that we have to acknowledge, and I think we're on the same page in this, that there... Aesthetic and labor is always subordinate to spirit. There is a, there's a sense in which the—and I think this was kind of what Jordan was trying to make. It was hard to follow, uh, admittedly. The conversation was very difficult to track with. But at some point, the point seemed like Jordan was trying to make is what becomes salient to us is predetermined by that value system. And I am— I need to have this dual concerns that my values, the spirit that I follow, may in some sense not be what's true, but I also have to have some other standard to aim that to, to help me realize whether or not I'm just following this particular Western culture thing, which has been, and I'm really thankful that my professors in seminary forced us to read theologies that were non-Western theologies. So to be exposed to Latin American liberation theology, there was a book I read, um, John Sabrino, Principles of Mercy, and I came out halfway through that book and doubted whether or not I was a Christian after reading him. Um, Like it really, it made me think whether or not I had missed it all completely because of that perspective. I also, you know, I hear Taoists talk about things uh i mean i've got a i keep i keep a copy of the Tao uh, the the Tao chi near me and i i enjoy reading from it because there's a i it's just it seems like a paradox but i believe and this is how my my sort of pluralism works it's a christocentric inclusivism that's the theological term for it for me i see the presence of christ at work in the cultures around the world, revealing and disclosing himself and facets of himself that other particular cultural lenses have blinded us from. So I can see that in Taoism. I can see it in the Buddha. Um, But I think like part of interfaith dialogue, part of pluralistic dialogue is doing what I think you do so well, what we hopefully are doing well, is like putting our cards on the table and saying, Okay, this is the referential point that I'm starting from. This is my convictional location. So I have to have, in a sense, when I read the Buddha and go, well, that's good, either the Buddha is the referential point or I'm saying the Buddha is good because it's in harmony with some other referential point. And that's, you know, my, my critique of, I, I don't know, and maybe in further conversations you can lay this out for me, John, I don't know how we can take a discipline like the sciences, and say whether or not—I mean, here's a real example. I just had a conversation with a family a few days ago who, um, who's dealing with an incident, not with their own child, but someone they know who's 
parents are presenting to them at a very young age, seven or eight years old, that they need to transition to be a different gender. That's a value judgment, right, that sits within a particular narrative. Um, and I'm very sympathetic to, to the transgender experience, but I also encounter that and go, all right, that's not just like a scientific claim. It's a it's value claim that sits within a particular narrative that has a particular standard. And it's like, we want to level up as high as we can, but how do we level up together without an acknowledgement that we are pointing towards, or at least have some sort of held together, shared North Star, if you will. So, uh, yeah. Um, That's a lot there. Sorry. No, no. As I said, um, I don't think of the sciences as the place in which we find that. Uh, uh, Like I said, we have to talk about not, not only what science, what we derive from science, but also what science presupposes. I'll keep coming back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and science presupposes truth. It presupposes uh, good, good. It presupposes, for example, that the truth is better than falsity. Mm-hmm. Like all kinds of stuff. Like so, again. Uh, and religion don't... presupposes the intelligibility of reason. I mean, I say this to people all the time. You presuppose the intelligibility of the world when you pick up your Bible. And you think the sentences make sense together as exactly. words and expressions. Exactly. We have these a priori presuppositions that we all hold to. And see, and that's where, for me, uh, I, don't know, I, don't, I, I don't only see the emanation of spirit, I see the emergence upward uh, uh, out of, hmm. of novelty. Hmm. Um, and, I, and I think if the spirit uh, of emanation is not responsible to the spirit of emergence, and vice versa, by the way, and vice versa, then we get into serious trouble. Then we get into serious trouble. Um, now, what I think, what I'm trying to say is, I don't want to say that the machinery of science, insofar as disclosing fact, can give us value. But I'm also, you know, I don't hold to a human unbridgeable gap between value and fact. You know, other people, Putnam and others, have argued that, no, no, and this is something I think is the case with relevance realization, uh, fact and value are deeply interdependent and interpenetrating, and we can't separate them. And, and trying to uh, delimit our behavior by claiming metaphysical and epistemological divides that I think are not ultimately justifiable, I think mm-hmm. that's a worrying strategy. So, uh, uh, so I, I would like instead to propose what, what I'm proposing to you is exactly what we're doing is we're not doing science here, uh, but what, but but what we're trying to do is uh, like I think uh, you seem to be like responding. We're trying to be responsible. If you'll allow me this language, the spirit of emanation and the spirit of emergence uh, together. Um, yes. And so, I mean, you even see in Aragina's notion of creation that creation isn't just top down; it's bottom up. And you, of course, you have. That as we're praying to God, God is within us, the Holy Spirit, affording us to pray. There's a bottom. Like, so I'm not invoking something that's antithetical to your own tradition. No, I fully agree. I, I, I get that it's not been primary or, or foregrounded in your tradition, but it's not something that you can say, nobody in Christianity has ever talked this way. I don't think that's fair to me. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm proposing something uh, that is much more deeply, deeply dialogical. 
uh, and say, yes, there, there's a way in which I, I do need to be responsible to something, like you said, the North Star, but I also need to be responsible to the texture of the ground beneath my feet. Because if I'm only looking at the North Star, I'm going to trip and fall. If I'm mm. only feeling the ground, I'll lose my way. I have to balance them in a continual ongoing fashion to each other. So I'm actually trying to broaden the polarity of the normativity. That's, mm. that's what I'm trying to argue for. Mm. Well, I think we do it again. I assume this particular value, right? Yeah. <laughs> you can get levels of skepticism here where you're constantly critiquing this thing without end. But I do assume within my particular story that we participate, we were made for each other as well. And so this enterprise yeah. is a productive one because we share it with other image bearers. We share it yeah. with those in which we were made to be in communion with. I mean, this is to me part of the fundamental nature of Trinitarian theology. Stanley Grentz called it, um, the, uh, maybe he didn't call it this. <laughs> Sometimes I say that and I go, wait, maybe he didn't. He'd probably do the same thing too. Who, who was this? this? Um, yeah. the, 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 a community of God, um, the, the God community, the, the triune nature of God is that in fundamental to God's nature is communion. Um, and we, being made in that likeness, again, this framework allows me to go and be like, we need the perspectives of others. It removes myself from this hyper-individualism. So this, this dialogue today, John, I, I really, and I'm glad there was a little bit of pushback and forth. I hope you felt comfortable with it, too. Oh, I enjoy it. I love, I'm a martial artist. I love the dance. Yeah, yeah. It. And I'm, a, I'm an athlete, too. And, like, basketball was my sport. And Boy, I, I sometimes, um, if you see me out there, probably people doubt that I'm a pastor <laughs> because, <laughs> and I don't get meaner with it, but I grew up in Detroit playing streetball and there was this back and forth smack talk that was part yeah. of the game of streetball, yeah. you know, and afterwards you weren't angry with the guy across, but you were pushing each other yeah. and you're seeing what's there. And so I, I have that in me and I, I, I've tamed it down quite a bit, but it still emerges, but I find yeah. it helpful. Because that's yeah. the thing that helps you deal with whether or not you're just feeding your own confirmation bias. So exactly. I always, you yeah. don't have to preface if, we, if we're able to have future conversations because I come out with so much good um, that I perceive to be good in each time I talk or listen to you. Uh, just so you know, you don't have to feel any hesitation in giving pushback. I, I actually think that's part necessary for metanoia is to have yeah, pushback. I, 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 we in that year are in total agreement. Uh, I, I, you know, for me, that's the Socratic spirit. Uh, we're not challenging each other. We won't ever achieve arete. We won't ever achieve virtue or, or excellence. The word means both. Um, and you know, uh, you know, the best things are, uh, you know, are, are rare, as Spinoza says. And so we have to really, we have to struggle. Like Jordan, Jordan Peterson wrestling with God, right? Yeah, um, that's Israel. <laughs> yeah. And so if we're not doing that, we're not in contact. We're not in a dynamic conformity. We're not wrestling with something. I reminded him that Platon, that he had big shoulders. Plato was a wrestler. Right? Mm. Uh, we're not wrestling with something. We're not in dynamic conformity, ongoing continuity of transformative contact with it. Um, I think God, the Gilrami religious language, God participates in, in himself so that we may participate in him. Um, and, and so trying to separate all these things out um, I think uh, I think that's a mistake. I think letting 
letting things like debate and dialogos interpenetrate each other is at the heart of dialogos. Um, and our Augsburg, like you said, our Augsburg is shouting or echo chambering each other. If we have to be able to get to, my definition of dialogos is you and I get to a place together that we individually couldn't have gotten to on our own. And yeah. if that's taken place, then whatever reliably affords that, I think should count as a proper part of dialogos. Fully agree. That's a great way to wrap up the conversation, John. Thank you again for the time. I hope, hope we can continue to have dialogues, dialogos in the future. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I've, I really come out feeling sharpened. The iron, to take religious language, the iron sharpening iron, I, I certainly okay. feel very, very sharp after I, I get done a conversation me, with you. Me too, Paul. I really enjoy this. I mean, um, I, I mean, I, I enter into discussion, dialogos with people of other faiths, uh, Islam, Buddhism, uh, but I, 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 deep, I have been deeply gifted by genuine dialogos with Christians. And <clears throat> I'm grateful to that. I, that, I guess that's all, that's all I want to do. I just want to express Good. gratitude. Well, I, I'd, I'd want to, if, if you're not uncomfortable with this, I, I felt the sense, even leading into the, the conversation, you know, in my charismatic tradition, we would call them words, get a word from from God, um, and I'm not saying this is a word from God, but I've I've certainly felt a sense of something I wanted to express was my appreciation and encouragement to you that um, you know there are certainly ways you could probably climb particular status ladders to make a lot more money selling things, um, and uh, one of those ways is via culture war. Um, you make a blip on the culture war radar, and all of a sudden, you know, here come the culture warriors to rally around you. And one of the things I so sincerely appreciate, <clears throat> and I want to encourage, just offer some encouragement in that there are people that deeply appreciate that uh, you are not enamored with being a culture warrior. And no. um, in some sense, the refusal to participate in that, um, I'm sure there's probably some temptation, uh, as I see various people in, in your field get big book deals or whatever, because they have waded in, and I'm not even just, if people are thinking I'm just speaking about someone like Jordan Peterson, it's not, it's not just exclusively that. I see behavioral cognitive scientists weigh in on these yeah. sorts of culture war issues, and it's the surefire way of getting yourself a book deal and a million followers on Twitter. And I just want to encourage you, I'm, I, I feel so grateful to not have to sift through that stuff in consuming your material, I know there's probably some temptation there um, to maybe wade those wa into those waters to maybe grow a bigger following. But uh, I just wanted to offer that encouragement that there are people that still see that there's a narrow way uh, unplugged from the culture war matrix. And it affords us, I think, a much richer dialogue, even if that dialogue is not as heard <laughs> by as many people. So thank you for that. Thank you for the encouragement. It's very, it's, it is helpful and needed, much appreciated. I want to, as much as possible, exemplify the spirit of Socrates uh, around this. And I, I'm going to, um, I aspire to be as true to that, as betrothed to that, as faithful to that as I possibly can be. Well, I will, I will pray that uh, you will continue to have the strength to carry on in that narrow way. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. I appreciate your time. Take good care, Paul. We'll talk again. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Boy, there, I know there was a lot there. We covered a lot of ground and uh, we could have gone for much longer. But that feel, felt like an appropriate place to stop the conversation. We'll, we'll carry it on another time. I, I'm confident that we'll do that. I'd love to hear from you, though, whether or not there were points of agreement, disagreement, thoughts you had, things that came to mind. Uh, again, these can be objections, things you disagree with me about, things that you disagree with Dr. John Verveke about. I'd love to hear all of them. And one of the best places that you can share those perspectives is in our discussion forum that we have for each episode on Patreon. For every episode, we do a discussion forum where I interact with not just you, but you get to interact with others, do some distributed cognition across time and space via the medium of this Patreon forum. And uh, in that process, I, I found these discussion forums to have so many excellent nuggets of insight, wisdom, some quality pushback too as well, points of respectful disagreement or critique. It's really, really been a good experience. So if you want to engage there, you can just sign up on Patreon. Um, that By signing up on Patreon, you can become a supporter of this podcast for as little as two bucks a month. And uh, we're trying to hit that first tier of getting 300 supporters on Patreon to help me get to the point where I can sustain doing this weekly. We also have other avenues to participate in distributed cognition. I'm going to keep stealing that phrase from John, uh, including a monthly Zoom call for supporters on Patreon as well for those in the Theology 201 group or higher. These have been really, really productive conversations. We hop on, pick, select a few topics, and we just kind of work our way through them together, giving everybody an opportunity to speak and share their mind. Those have been really profitable too as well. You can also reach out to me on Twitter, on Instagram. I'm active on those social media platforms. You'll find a link to my Twitter in the description of this podcast as well. Make sure you go check out Dr. John Verveke's work as well. Check out his Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. It's not that I agree with everything in there. Obviously, you heard in today's discussion, there's going to be points of disagreement. But it is a profound work of history, philosophy, psychology, and he just gave it away for free. To me, that was pretty Christ-like of him, if I do say so myself. Um, it's just an amazing contribution to the world. I've, I think it's been one of the more profound works um, that I've digested in the last few years. So I'll provide a link for that as well on his YouTube page. Finally, I want to give an extra special thanks to Clint, Jesse, Anders, BJ, Carolyn, Eli, Elise, Dr. Jim, John Mark, John Michael, Johnny, Josie, JT, Justin, Lola, Luke, Matthew, Michael Hawk, Michael Hernstein, Michael Peterson, Mike Thomas, Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Peter, Rob, Sam and Nicole, Sam P, Sarah R, Sean C, Taylor S, and Tim K. Thank you all for your extra generous support. It means the world to me. Thank you for helping to keep this podcast going and afloat so that it can be hopefully a blessing to other people. Well, I look forward to hearing your comments and feedback or at least reading them in the discussion forums or those of you that are going to participate in the group Zoom discussion forums in the month of July. I can't wait to hear your feedback as well. Until next time, we'll talk again soon.